Welcome to Thrive Radio, expert visionary and innovative business, life, and relationship advice to live a life of doing the impossible with your host, Amy Montgomery. Amy Montgomery, entrepreneur and digital marketing agency owner. Today, my guest is Ellen Moran. She is an executive and team coach. She focuses on talent development, innovation, culture strategies for the hybrid workforce and employer of choice. Ellen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you, Amy. Yeah. So can you share your journey and how you became a coach? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. I started out as a clinical psychologist many moons ago, and I did therapy, and I did in-depth testing of people to see what was wrong, and I did that for a few years, and then one Saturday on a soccer field, my kids were playing soccer, and it was like freezing cold, and one of the parents was making conversation with me who knew I was a psychologist and said, hey, Ellen, I was just downsized from my job, And I'm working with this wonderful psychologist in outplacement. And I said, what's outplacement? I got really curious because he talked about how helpful this person was. So pretty soon I started networking. And within a month, I was uh, interviewing at a global outplacement firm to do career assessment. And I used my knowledge of my other tests, wing it with these in the beginning, and It was really interesting. And after about the third executive that we had worked with, because I would have their strategist coach with them, she said, you're really good at this. And I thought, that's interesting. And I don't even know their test that well. But as I got into it, I thought, there's something really wonderful about this because I'm not trying to fix what's wrong with people. I'm helping them find what's right so they can get a better new job. And that's when I knew I was on to something. And as it turned out, my going to a career assessment outplacement thing changed my career. So after that, I worked with them for a while. I decided to learn the assessments that they, they use there. And then I called up a former professor of mine who had taught me 15 years before in graduate school and said, hey, Nick, I really like this kind of work. And you're the only other psychologist I know who's doing it. This was an organizational development firm. Could I take you to breakfast? In another year, I was a full-time person up working in this organizational development firm and was no longer doing clinical work. And I did that for nine years. But what we were doing was pretty much selection testing primarily. And I was always a seeker looking into different kinds of methodologies And at one point I decided, I think it's just time for me to leave. And so I left with a two-year non-compete, three-year non-compete with all the big companies in St. Louis. And I had to figure it out. And I started networking and called this global coaching firm because I had been doing some coaching and wound up having a conversation in German with the assistant there because I had a background in German. I had studied over there and had an assistantship over there. And she says, oh my gosh, you speak good German for an American. We have this program we have to roll out in Switzerland in three weeks and we don't have anybody to do it. So would you do this for us? And so I took a deep breath and I wanted to let them know my German was 30 years old and I could talk a good game, but that might not be quite enough. 
They said, ah, no problem. So that was a whole adventure in and of itself when I got over there and was working with people who were scientists and was needing to do this work. And uh, it was a wonderful adventure. At one point, I said to them, it's clear that my German's rusty. So if I say anything really off base, would you write it down on your little papers there and pass it up at the end of class? And so they did that. They got a chuckle out of it. And then I would get the best English speaker of the Germans. And I'd say, all right, this is what I want to say. And he would dictate to me in German on my flip charts. So I could get up there and talk confident that I had flawless German doing this. So that's how I made my way through it. But that was my first gig afterwards. And then I just continued on after that with my own business. That's amazing. Such an amazing story. And what an experience to have to end up going all the way to a different country, getting business in a completely different country. It's just mind, it's mind blowing what you can do nowadays. Yeah. And this was quite a while ago when the, and I don't know, another crowd might've been different, but this crowd, I thought, well, they know how hard it is to speak English and have to deal with native speakers when their language is more primitive. They'll probably understand what it's like for me. And, and they did. So it, it turned out that it worked out really well, but it was a really fun adventure for just having left my firm. Yeah, definitely. So how do you help businesses make their company appealing for the right? It goes back to my roots with regard to the outplacement. So one of the things I noticed that was really compelling to me in outplacement was when people had these tests that we gave them and they got really clear about what they were good at. Because a lot of times people have been in jobs they could do, but it really wasn't their passion or it wasn't what they loved. And when they found out what they really could be capable of doing, they often got much better jobs than they had before in in companies that really could value them. And so many times people said to me, if I hadn't been forced out of the company, I would never have gone through this to get another job. So what I do now is I think about it a little bit, Amy, as three layers of value, because I think people really want to add value. They want to feel that wherever they are, whether it's their home or their work, that they're really creating value and that people value them for what they do. So the first level of value I think of is just what are your natural talents? What are your motivations? What are your interests? What are your values? And we have assessments for all of those. The one that has to do with your natural talents is like taking a three-hour video game. But when you get really clear, you all of a sudden start seeing things that you didn't see before that were opportunities. And because you have assessments, it's not maybe I think I'm good at this, but I don't know. It's like the paper tells you and it builds confidence. And so that's the first layer. And people, when they go to interview, can interview differently than others because they're so clear about themselves and they can describe what they're really good at in a meaningful way and what they would like. So that's the first layer of value. The second layer of value is knowing, getting rid of for whatever, for want of a better word, your head trash. So sometimes you can go in and you can have all these abilities but you'll, you have these other below conscious biases that get you into trouble. And it can take a whole lot. Have you ever done something you thought was a good idea or said something? And then you say, why did I say that? 
I know better than that. Yeah. And what that's telling you is that we, at a certain level, we know we have good ways of thinking and poor ways of thinking. It can some, but that most of them are below consciousness. We don't know it. Sometimes we, and we're really puzzled. Sometimes we can get back and figure out why you did that. But there's this assessment now that shows you 36 ways that people think about what's valuable. And it gives you a readout on what your below conscious biases are that can get you into trouble. And also what your, what we call cognitive assets are your very best ways of thinking. So what people are able to do is catch themselves when they're not so good ways of thinking are coming up and about to get them into trouble. We call that active mindfulness, like being aware in the moment of that. And then we show them how to switch at that moment into their better ways of thinking, their real cognitive assets that open up totally different ways of responding. And we do that through some questions that trigger their assets. But even without knowing all of that, we have what we call the central question. And if people just get used to saying this, it can make a big difference. And the central question is, what choice can I make and action can I take in this moment to create the greatest net value? Which means it's orienting us to all of the people involved and it's pulling out of our self-protective things that are part of our biases. And so even going around and doing that can help people. I've really enjoyed this assessment and the coaching method that goes with it to really help people be so much more effective in terms of their better thinking. And so that's my, the second layer of value. And then the third layer of value is when people need to work with each other on teams. And sometimes teams seem to work really well. Sometimes they don't, particularly when they have to problem solve together. And I can agree with that. uh, (laughs) Right. And oftentimes we don't know how to say, we don't know how to figure out again, what's wrong. What's not working. Well, sometimes it was, well, bad personality. Oh, these people just have conflicts. And actually what it can be is that each of us have a cognitive style that fits with different phases of the innovation or problem solving cycle. So First, if you're going to really solve a problem or bring an innovation to the world, first you need to bring in new ideas or find possibilities and get data because that's what that's the sort of the kernel from which it comes. And so there are people who really like to do that. We call them generators. They generate ideas and they do it by going out and they like to talk to people. And they say, you know what those people are doing? We ought to do something like that. And they'll bring in you some data, but then they're done. Somebody ought to do something about that. So then you need to put the ideas together and come up with some kind of concept, like you do marketing, right? So you probably have to do conceptualizing at some point, pulling the market data together, different things and saying, all right, what's a good strategy for that? So people who are conceptualizers are good at coming up with a strategy that makes sense and offer a few ideas. But then not all the ideas are good ones, right? And so now you need people that we call optimizers. And so they look at the ideas and they come up with criteria 
to judge the ideas though, like amount of revenue, return on investment, low-hanging fruit, easy to implement, whatever those are. And then they come up with which are the best ones for us to take forward. And then they're really good at planning, like how are we going to take this forward? And then lastly, you have the people at the end of the cycle that want to just sell the idea. They're good at selling or just making it happen. They actually do it. And so then the cycle is complete. Once you've done it, sometimes new problems come up and opportunities, and then you start over again. But that's when it flows. People with those different preferences are able to carry the ball around, but most teams don't know what they're composed of. And so what can happen, a number of things can happen. So if you don't know where you fit in the cycle, the generators can conflict with the optimizers because the generators keep bringing more ideas. And the optimizers say, please stop. I just want one that I can really work and that we can take forward. Okay. And so the generators think these are green eyed shades people and they don't have any creativity. And the others think this is like trying to get a hold of Jello. And then the conceptualizers can conflict with the implementers because one of them is think, they want to have this well worked out. And the other one is just give me something to do. Come on, how long are we going to be waiting around for this? You can have these conflict and people will make generalizations. Sometimes it's personal. And it really is just is the way they're seeing the problem from their perspective. And so helping people understand what the cycle is and then also what their role is. And so they are a certain amount of each role, right? But it depends on the degree to which they're that role and helping them see what, how they can work together and appreciate how they need each other. I just two weeks ago was working with a startup and they came to me and said, we've got these conflicts among people and somebody ran a meeting and the other person didn't like the way they ran it. And I thought, ah, sounds like a process problem. Sounds like they don't have a good process for their meeting. So let's see what's going on. So there were eight of them in leadership and we gave them the assessment. It takes about 10 minutes. But what we found out was so interesting is that nobody on the team was an optimizer. So that meant nobody was doing the planning and the selecting of ideas. So it was this thing of come up with an idea, throw mud at the wall, try it out, see how it goes. And so they really weren't going around the cycle and particularly because they didn't have that style. So now what we know is the next time, the next person they hire in and people who are in fine, like they need a finance person. So people in finance are very used to that kind of thinking. So they can do that. But now what's happened is just be, by knowing the process, they've started changing the way they have their meetings and it's making a lot more sense for them. So it's really been, and so people can add value. If I get back a third way of adding value is how do you interact and how do you problem solve with people at a high level when you've got to solve the problems of the business? Yeah, that's really a, it's a, sounds like a really powerful approach because you give people a place to give their input and everyone understands where their input fits Yes. versus and- just one type leading the whole thing and saying, this is what we're going to do. And, we're, and now just everyone go deal with it. And how many times have you seen people who took something that seemed like a good idea at the time? implemented it. No one used it. They lost money on it, whatever, because we call that there are eight steps within the four and we call that going from one to eight. And so you come up with an idea and then you implement it. 
The other thing that can happen is you can get too many of a particular kind on your team. And that has real implications for what can happen and not happen. So if you've got a team that's largely implementers and optimizers, this is where continuous improvement lives, but they'll keep trying to improve what they already have been doing. And so they take the same hill over and over again and maybe get some incremental benefit, but they aren't bringing in fresh ideas from the outside that they're then conceptualizing and so forth. And there are industries that are that way. Financial services has been a lot that way, mm -hmm. even, though, even though they're being forced with FinTech and so forth to do things. And then also construction. And in a couple of cases, they were, they were really caught and the board scene saw that they needed to be able to move. So when I did the selection testing for the CEOs, the potential CEOs, we would look at all the competencies that they had to have to be a CEO, but all things being equal, what was their, what was their innovation style? And so we knew in both of these cases, because they were so filled with, and the executive team was too, with implementers and optimizers, that we had to get a leader who was either a generator or a conceptualizer to have the power to begin to move the team in another direction. And so that's another way that it's played itself out. And then if you get people on the other side and you get a lot of generators and a lot of conceptualizers, oh, they have the most fun meetings. They come up with ideas and strategies and it's fabulous. And it never sees the light of day because they can't move it on. They can't decide among them and they can't plan for them. And, you know, and that can happen not only at a whole enterprise level, but any team you're in. Yeah. Uh, I'm laughing because I've seen that happen where for an entire day, a group get together and just hammer out all the amazing things they're going to do and, and get excited and everyone's passionate. And then just a week later or a month later, I'd ask when's X, Y, and Z can happen. Oh, you know, that never happened. We can get things going and that's what. So yeah, I've seen that one in action. Definitely. And you can have an optimizer even and a couple of implementers there on the team. But if they're overweighted by the others, they're kind of seen as the weird herald of the group. And it's they tolerate them, but they don't understand the benefit that they bring and how to do the handoff. So it's really interesting how that can happen and how it can sideline teams when it's really just a matter of these four styles knowing how to work together. It's amazing. So how do cognitive styles affect collaboration? Or oh, I asked you that, sorry. What is self-leadership and how does it relate to leadership of others? Self-leadership is, is what I was describing about before, about cognitive biases and cognitive assets. And the notion behind that is that we can't really lead other people if we can't manage ourselves and lead ourselves. And the first part of that is being able to understand and manage your biases and then get into your best thinking. And when you're able to do that, then when you have management training and things like that, everything else becomes easier because people know how to access their best thinking and their thinking value creation. It's all about how do we create value together and will this create value? And so the, there's a program, once we give people the assessment, then we take them through 
about seven or eight weeks of getting really good at noticing their biases and when they come up and being able to shift and then how to use their assets and then how to think about things they have to get done and what biases do they need to be aware of and what assets are going to best help them get that done. And so that's what we call self-leadership. I also do it for venture capital and some of those places because it really is important to know the quality of the thinking of the people you're going to invest in. And so we can begin to look at those 36 dimensions and say, what are the kind of biases they could have and what are the assets and how much is it weighted one way? And so here's potentially the risks, but if you want to invest in them, we can help you make a difference so that they are able to work. They're not going to reflexively run into their biases and have those be acted. How do you help with, how do you help with decoding individual language styles so that it eliminates the guesswork of communication? That's one of the other things that I've done for about, oh gosh, it was part of the reason why I left my firm to go out on my own because nobody else was, I had learned this and no one else was interested in it. And I thought, I just need to fly. I just need to do some different things. So This is, let me give you an example. We can play along with the audience. So think about a time when you really wanted to get going, you really wanted to make something happen and you were in a hurry and you didn't want people getting in your way. But then there's other times when you really want to think something through before you act and you don't want anybody pushing you, right? I'm not finished with that. There's times when we're really interested in a goal, like we really want to achieve something and we can see it, feel it, taste it, and we just want to go there. But there are other times when we really want to prevent a problem. We see an issue, we're saying, I'm not going to move, I see an issue here, and so I'm going to be careful about not getting into that problem. Sometimes we want to make decisions on our own because we think we have the right standard. Sometimes we don't trust ourselves And we really want guidance from somebody else. Sometimes we, and I have a story about this that's really funny. It's how I got into this. Sometimes we really want to have a whole lot of options for what we do. And sometimes when we're, particularly if we're new at something, we just want someone to show us step by step how to do it. And there's more, but that will give you the flavor. So if you think about it, in any situation, these patterns, these expectancies are running in our mind. Okay. So if we're talking to someone and we all talk out of our own patterns or triggers in the situation, and if they're opposite each other, all of a sudden you can have communication challenges. You don't know why. Some people, if they're really wanting to move forward in something and there's other people saying, "Ah, I'm not so sure about this. And they're thinking about all the problems that could come up and they start talking about the problems. What happens to the other person? who is all goal-oriented, all of a sudden you start to feel this tension in the room. And the person who's goal-oriented thinks this other person is just not a team player and they're negative. And the one who is concerned about it says they haven't thought this through and they're going to take us off a cliff if they don't stop and think about it. So those are where some of those tensions can come up. There's something called the language and behavior profile or lab profile that 
first of all, you can just get sensitive to once you're sensitive to the patterns or the motivational triggers, sometimes you can see them playing themselves out. You can say, oh, that's what's going on. Sometimes if you want to know where someone is, you really just need to ask an open-ended question. For you and for everyone in the audience, you might ask yourself, how do I know I'm doing a good job at my work? How do I know? All right. So if you were to answer that, what would you say? Right now, I would say one positive feedback from my clients. Uh If they readily give me testimonies or say, wow, you really helped me, whatever it is. And second would be my, would be the revenue. Okay. The sales that I'm making, the bottom line. Okay, great. You have a balance with this. And so when people, when I ask that question, there's two possible responses and sometimes they combine. One is I just know, or when I see this happening or I see that happening. So for you, if you decide by your own standard how much revenue you need, that's, that's a decision. But when you, the part of you that says, when I get testimonials, when I get good feedback from my client, that means that they decide whether you're doing a good job, okay? So at different times, we can be, you know, we decide for ourselves and want to, and other times we can be external We want advice or opinions from other people. And so we find that out just by asking that question. Now, a whole bunch of things happen from that. So if I'm with you and I are both in internal mode, this is not a person that we shift from situation. And you and I are in internal mode. And I'm thinking I've got some really good ideas that you ought to take for marketing. And you're listening to this and you're saying, she didn't know what she's talking about. Okay. She's not an expert in marketing. So part of you, and the more I insist, the more irritated inside you're going to get. Oh, you really ought to try this, Amy. It's really a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I've had other marketers do that to, to me where like I'll, I would give a very, I'm a very high level thinker. Uh-huh. I don't, I, it, it's not that I don't care about details. They're there. I get them done, but I start, everything I start with is general. Yeah. So I might ask a real general question. What do you think is the best paid lead generation tactic out there? I know all of the tactics, but just which one do you feel that you're, you get the best ROI at? And then you get, then I get these responses that are like the step-by-steps of, well, not, and I'd say I, I asked about paid. I said, what do you think about paid? And I get all these responses about organic I'm like, I didn't say anything about organic and I wasn't asking how they like selling me on their services. I'm an agency and we do this. And I'm like, I wasn't asking how I wasn't trying to hire someone and I wasn't asking organic. What I was asking for was what's the ROI, the high level, what do you like the best? I just wanted, but it's funny you do, you get, or they'll just come in. If you don't give all the details, they tack on what's not there. I feel like sometimes. So that's great. You've given me three examples of patterns. Okay, so one we started talking about, which was people thinking they know more, but then you took it to another place, which is, and that's a pattern called options versus procedures and general versus specifics. You want a general idea, not all these specifics, right? Yeah. So if someone gives you specifics when you want something general, 
it irritates you. And vice versa. <laughs> if somebody wants specifics so they can evaluate you and they're being up here, that drives them nuts because they can't get a hold of it. So there's a pattern called general versus specific, and we need to match that. And that the options versus procedures, when you ask a question for which there could be any answer, you're giving them the option. But if they come to you and start giving you a procedure, it, it like works your last nerve, right? <laughs> because it's opposite. Yeah. And so this is how these patterns operate. That's hilarious and, that there's act, that it's actually a process and a system that works within our, in, within communication. Yeah. I have something I call the people pattern map. And so I have all of these patterns and then you can put yourself first and say in this particular situation, are you more this way or this way or this way? And so forth. And we can, and then I'll say, now this person you're having challenges with, how would you describe them? Are they more this way, this? And we can see where they're missing. I had this experience about a year ago with someone who was, we were having a conversation and he was telling me he was a reformed accountant. Okay. And so I was showing him these different patterns and he said, you're freaking me out. And I said, why? And he said, you're just showing me that all of my patterns are opposite of my clients. So there was a reason he called himself a reformed um, accountant because he, and he said, oh, so that might be why I have these great ideas that people don't want to take on because he wasn't speaking the language. They might've been different on a number of these patterns. And you can say the same thing, but you need to say it in that language. Yeah, that, it's so interesting. Yeah. And I think you mentioned some of the financial, like the, some of the firms out there being very much the ones that kind of go in, in that cycle of improving. And I also noticed in working in, the, in that environment, everyone is very step one, step two, step three, step, so it's that procedural you know, they, they have to go one, they have to take every st single step to get to the final conclusion. And I'm one of the ones that goes from one, from A to Z yep. instantly. Yep. And, but I had to learn to communicate with this one step, two step, three step. Mm -hmm. And the, I found the best way for me to do that is through PowerPoint. Yes. So I'll do workshops and when I do workshops, I get into teach mode and I go into massive detail on everything. And the one, the people that love the detail, then they like the, they like those types of the presentations that I give versus just the, all the high level ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you can talk high level, but they got their detailed content. And because what you're doing and what you're saying is that in any audience you have, you can have people sitting there with different patterns running, right? Yeah. And so it's how do you anticipate what the motivational triggers are and say it a couple of ways so that it goes in to the different people in the audience. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's been one of the most fascinating bodies of knowledge that, that I've learned over the years. And what I'm talking about today are my four favorites, right? Yeah. Uh, that I really like to do. But this has solved so many problems for people when they get irritated and they just don't see what's going on. I had a, someone in a bank who wanted to put out this new bank product. He was a, 
and they wanted to sell it in this way. And they had their nice brochures and marketing materials. But of course, they had to go through risk management. And so we were in a coaching session and he said, oh, risk management, where good ideas go to die. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that phrase before. (laughs) And so I said, all right. So we went through our person pattern map. And I said, so would you say that risk management likes to look at a lot of options or they want to have a, a real straight procedure? He said, oh, they want a procedure. And I said, do you think risk management is aligned with you with goals that they want to have? Or do you think that they want to prevent a problem? Oh, they want to prevent a problem. Okay. And so I said, now risk management, do they want to get going and make sure this gets out and make it happen? Or do they want to think about it until they're absolutely sure okay, that they can, oh, they want to think about it. So as we went down, they of course were opposite on all the patterns. And so what we talked about then was how to talk to risk management around these things. And he said, okay. And then just as he was leaving, he said, oh, this opens up so many opportunities. I said, no, you're not talking about opportunities. You're talking about problems that need to be solved step by step. And so it's really funny how hard it is to get out of our own frame of reference. Yeah, definitely. It really is. So how do you help organizations get the best out of their employees? I think it's really a combination of the things we've been talking about. It's seeing what their aptitudes and talents might be through assessments. It's helping with self-leadership so that they really, their employees are now thinking about value creation, helping them understand how to work together. And I think what's happening in the new economy, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is that people are being very picky about what companies they'll go to work for because they can decide. They've had it and they want to go to a place where they're really appreciated and can do their best work. And I've been thinking that some of these methodologies can really be used by companies to become an employer of choice. So if the employee is choosing between one company and another, and they know that when they come on board with this particular company that's devoted to their development, and they will have ways of finding out what they do best and have a a career path based on that, my hope is that that can be more compelling and can be more of a talent magnet for them. So what do you think has been your truth that's gotten you this far in your journey? I think my truth has been take risks and trust yourself to somehow make it through and really know what your values are, what's important to you, because that's really your North Star, particularly when things get rough, is to really be clear about that. And I think one of the best phrases I heard or that I've thought of is be curious and be bold because in the end, you either win or you learn. That's good. So can you share some of your client success stories with? Yeah, a couple of them. One would be the one where we found that we were missing the optimizer. And so now we are going to go out and purposefully look for that person, and they now are using the process. In a couple of instances, like I described before, I really helped with the hiring in of a new CEO, and that has really been transformational for the company as they began to see what they bring and were able to move them into the new reality. Um, Another one was coming into a a company 
manufacturing company and they had a new product development team. And the problem was that the everybody, there were VPs from different areas. And so everybody was trying to make sure that their function was okay and was taken care of. So because they were all coming in based on what they were trying to leverage for their function, the products weren't getting out. They weren't moving through the cycle. And we came in and I came in with a colleague who's one of the best people at Procter & Gamble for this. This is what they use at Procter & Gamble to solve problems for their brands. It was the men ambassador who designed it originally came from there. But we did, and we took as our problem, how do we create a culture of collaboration? By the end of the time, people were holding hands and they were having, because they had worked through the thing together and they could see together what the issues were. And it wasn't one against the other, but the way the process is laid out, you, it's a process of discovery and choosing. And gosh, they took out a whole piece of the process that they saw was just a way of protecting them from having to do the work at another place and so forth. And it made a real difference. And then a year or two later, they had us come back. And what was really interesting is when I did my interviews in the beginning, they no longer were so tactical because we had taken care of some of the tactical things. So now they were talking about more strategic issues. And what that eventuated into is eventually working with the senior most people in the company and having this strategic dialogue with them. And so they became so proud of what they called their culture of collaboration that they had done themselves. That's really good. I have one more question for you. If you were able to give yourself one piece of advice when you first started out, what would, what would it be? I think it would be, don't be afraid. There are so many, and know who you are, know who you are and don't be afraid because I think however you find your talents, it's important to know them. And actually, here's something I might leave people with too as a way of doing it without going into assessment. Just write down for yourself 10 success stories in your life and then go through those and write all the skills you had to have, even all the way back even to if you had the lemonade stand that made a hundred bucks when you were a kid, what are these and what skills did you use to be able to accomplish that? And then if you look, you'll start to see that certain things start repeating themselves over and over again. And those are the things that are your really important skills. Then another thing to do is to take someone who knows you pretty well, read the stories to them, and then have them say what skills they hear in there, because sometimes we're blind to what we really are able to do. And if people even do that and can own that, and then don't be afraid, just try it. And as I said before, this phrase I just love, either I win or I learn. I love that. So if there's someone that's listening that would love to get a hold of you to work with you, what's the best way to contact? They can call my office at 314-995-6825. They can email me at info at leadershipdialogues.com. And it's leadership, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S.com because some people spell it G-S. And so, so those would be the two, be- I'm on LinkedIn, Ellen L. Moran, PhD. And so that's another place to find me. Perfect. Now put the links down below. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your expertise. Thank you. This has been really fun. Yes, definitely. And if you are listening, you want more information about this podcast and upcoming shows, you can visit a call to thrive.com. Thank you everyone. Have a